Hi, and welcome to the Genesis Podcast. We're so glad to be able to bring a small portion of our community to you through this medium and hope that you'll join us in our endeavor to embolden one another to change the world by effectively representing Jesus Christ. If you would like to know more about who we are as a community, as well as when and where we meet, you can visit us online at thegenesisstory.com. Also, if you have benefited from this podcast in any way or would like to participate in what we're doing here at Genesis, would you consider partnering with us by donating online again at www.thegenesisstory.com. There you can select the giving tab and how you would like to contribute to the general fund or even to the building fund. Remember, we can do more together than we can ever do alone. Thanks for taking the time to be with us. God bless. How's everybody doing? Everyone have a good week? Uh, Grateful for Ben covering last week. Tonight we're going to cover two of the churches, the and end our series on the letter to the churches. They're not in order. We're covering Thyatira in chapter 2 and Laodicea, the final one, in chapter 3, just because of my uh, error in covering them. But let's pray before we get started. Father, we are thankful again for our time together, Lord, and I do pray that as we look at what you spoke to these two churches all those years ago, Father. You are speaking to your church still today, God. And even though the culture is different, there are still things that are similar. Father, there are definitely things that we can take away from these things that were spoken, and I pray we would do just that. Help us to be open to what you would speak to our lives, to our church, and Lord, may we have ears to hear. Thank you again for those who uh, helped me out by speaking for Ben and Michael uh, this past week. Pray you continue to bless and anoint them and uh, utilize their gifts, Father, as they are indeed gifted as we all are, Lord, by you in so many ways. Thank you for this time, Lord, we do. Thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. So... Short review, these seven churches that John is writing about are churches that are regional there in Turkey. They are actual churches at the time that he was writing. Uh, We've seen that each of the letters to the churches starts off with uh, a vision of who Jesus is. And from there, it goes to speak very specifically to those churches. It speaks to the things that are taking place in them, in the cities where they're at, and how they are to be encouraged by Christ uh, at the end. And so, as we look at them, let's keep that in mind Because as we look at some of the things that are specific in those letters, we will draw out from them how he is speaking to the church at that time of history in that culture, and then take from that the things we can that are applicable, because there's, again, much that is applicable. We are going to look at the Church of Thyatira, chapter 2, verses 18 through 29, and we'll start and read that. 
To the angel of the church in Thyatira write, These are the words of the Son of God, whose eyes are like blazing fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your deeds, your love and faith, your service and perseverance, and that you are now doing more than you did at first. Nevertheless, I have this against you. You tolerate that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophet. By her teaching, she misleads my servants into sexual immorality and the eating of food sacrificed to idols. I have given her time to repent of her immorality, but she is unwilling. So I will cast her on a bed of suffering, and I will make those who commit adultery with her suffer intensely, unless you repent of her ways. I will strike her children dead. Then all the churches will know that I am he who searches hearts and minds, and I will repay each of you according to your deeds. Now I say to the rest of you in Thyatira, to you who do not hold to her teachings and have not learned Satan's so-called deep secrets, I will not impose any other burden on you except to hold on to what you have until I come. To the one who is victorious and does my will to the end, I will give authority over the nations. That one will rule them with an iron scepter and will dash them to pieces like pottery. Just as I have received authority from my father, I will also give that one the morning star. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches." Thyatira was not as well known as the other cities in the letters that have been written here, the other six cities. But they were known especially for their trade in copper and bronze. And also the local deity, remember a lot of these cities, a lot of these Roman cities would have centers of worship that were actually part of their commerce because they would worship a god to provide for their needs. And here we are worshiping the god that has to deal with bronze and the things that bring income. And so the god was Apollo Tyramenius, who appeared on the local coins together with Caesar, who was called the son of God the Roman emperor. And so these associations there are particular to the letter's beginning as it announces the words of the Son of God, right? It's directly dealing with something that they would understand. Well, the Son of God who's being promoted here is Caesar, and we have Apollo, Tyramenus, the the god that deals with the bronze, which is our means of commerce. And so the letter is directly dealing with some of the things that are part of their culture at that time. And so the words of the Son of God, whose eyes are like flaming fire, whose feet are like exquisite brass, is definitely talking about Jesus overshadowing what is their worship in that city at that time. And this is intentional. The book of Revelation is, in a sense, very political in that even though they're not telling people how to vote or to do certain things, they're saying, you know, these cities who worship these gods 
and this form of uh, rule, I want you to see that Jesus is over those. And so remember, son of God was a term used for Caesar, but has now been taken and is used for Christ. And the feet being that of like exquisite bronze or brass, again, is dealing directly with their source of industry. And once again, we see that the livelihood is connected to idolatry, and it's important that we keep this in mind, especially when we get to the mark of the beast where no one can buy or sell. It is dealing very much so with a way of buying and selling and worship of foreign gods that we will see later on. And just like the letter to Pergamum that was Pergamum that was linked to an Old Testament villain, Balaam, we see here another villain comes up, and it's Jezebel. And this connection is important because Jezebel was a foreign woman who linked to Balaam, or was linked to uh, bringing this, the nation of Israel into idolatrous worship of Baal, who was a rival god to Israel. And now we're seeing that at its heart, there the many evils that are summarized in the Old Testament, like in 2 Kings chapter 9, and how these things show up to, to produce this type of worship that leads the children of Israel away from God, are showing up again. And using this terminology is helping to connect them to what had happened. Do you remember how, you know, Jezebel deceived and and brought down the nation because of this false worship? Well, the same thing is happening here today. And it's bringing out this. And the idea of Jezebel, she is often referred to as bringing Israel into uh, adultery. Um, talks about just kind of this whoredom and sorceries in the book of Kings. Um, And like fornication, it's a metaphor of idolatry, right? It's saying you've given yourself over to these other ways, but it was also more than just a, a spiritual communing with other gods. There was actually a physical worship of other gods that included sexual worship back when they talked about the the gods that Jezebel brought them into. And the same thing is most likely true here. It seems that that's in mind in verse 22 that we see, I will cast her on a bed of suffering. And so there seems to be this sexual kind of engagement here. It, it would seem unlikely that church members themselves were engaged in the sexual activity with this first century Jezebel, but everything we know about the ancient and pagan world seems to include this kind of worship. And so it might not be that far-fetched that they were delving into some of these things, um, that they were involved with this to the point where they weren't supposed to be connected to this. Now, it's interesting because And verse 20 says, nevertheless, I have this against you. You tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophet by her teaching. She misleads my servants into this way and eating of food sacrificed to idols. 
It's interesting that he mentions food sacrifice to idols, and there is this connection with that because we know from Paul's letter to the Romans that he tolerated that. So what's going on? Paul seems to be tolerating it, and here John is saying you can't be a part of this. Um, But it seems that it's gone a little bit further, right, that It wasn't just that there was food sacrificed to idols. There was a worship that was being engaged in. Paul definitely said that they weren't to engage in the worship, but the food that was sacrificed, well, an idol is nothing. It's not going to harm you. But if it's going to make someone who is eating with you have offense, well, then you could say, okay, I won't eat it because you're weak. You can't handle it. Here it seems there's a weakness in the church overall. That they don't just eat food that is sacrificed by the, to idols, but they're actually engaging in some of this idolat- idolatrous worship. And so that's a problem. And again, that problem probably included a behavior that was problematic. If you were looking for a prostitute at that time, you would go to the temple because that's usually where the prostitutes were. They were priests, priestesses in the pagan temples, and so that was the place to look. And so now you can see that there is a whole depth to this idolatrous worship. What do you do when you are a church in a community that this is their source of worship, that this is how they make money, this is how they eat. It is so much entrenched in everyday life of their society, and now you find yourself in it. How do you live in there? And we could ask that of ourselves, right? And maybe it might not be you go to temples, you know, to find prostitutes. But I think we live in a society where we've talked about this before, where um, it's so much about wealth. And we'll look at that a little bit more when we talk about Laodicea. And it's all about status and it's all about having enough. And when is enough enough, right? It's keeping up with the Joneses mentality where we can live in a culture where that becomes the domineering force and drive. And so it's not about how you can spend, you know, quality time becoming a better human being and giving yourself to your family and helping them. It becomes how do I get the better house and the better car and the better job? And after I get that, I need to go more and more. And so, yeah, I have to work six, sometimes seven days a week to get these things that can become a same kind of form. How do I live this Christian life without letting mammon dominate my life? And so these are the things that we're struggling to get through and find out what's going on. This woman that he's talking about, it's not clear whether she was an official or accredited teacher in the church, the church recognized her and she was teaching things that were false, but she certainly had an influence on the church, had some kind of prophetic gift. Remember, prophecy doesn't mean future telling, it means declaring. She had some ability to communicate, and so it seems that within this young and confused church community, some had become convinced that their spiritual freedom could be expressed even in this idolatrous way, which might even be the sexual license and freedom. 
And so, again, it shows up in the ceremonial rituals, tied to the culture, tied to the time. And as far as Jesus is concerned, this whole approach is a disaster. He, he lays the hammer down. You know, there, there's no, well, you know, I wish you wouldn't. It was like, you can't do this. You've crossed a line, and the church has no business compromising at any point with pagan worship and practices. Why is that so important? You know, we talk so much about Jesus loving and caring and reaching out to other people. Why is this now something that is drawing a line? And it has to do a lot of how the idea and worship that is taking place here is so far removed from what Christ represented that the moving to this starts to nullify this. And and I think we have to always keep that line. If we are going to be speaking to someone who's of a different faith, we can talk to them without demeaning them. But if I call myself a follower of Christ and I take practice in some of the areas of worship with a person of a different faith that start to discredit the faith that I have, then you are making your faith basically meaningless. You're diluting it to a place where people can't recognize the difference. Jesus loves everyone, as we're going to see. He still calls these people his children, treats them as his children. But we have to recognize that it isn't the same. We can love people and where they're at and all those things, but we're not going to say that it's the same. Buddhism is not the same as Christianity. Are there good things in Buddhism? Yeah, there's great things. But it's not the same. Islam is not the same as Christianity. Are there good practices in Islam? Yeah, but it's not the same. And by saying it's not the same, I'm not saying they're terrible people. I'm just saying they're not the same. And I can love someone who's in a different faith. I can care for them. But when I start taking my faith and start making it like their faith, because that's the domineering culture, then my faith starts to lose its strength in what it is really there. And so that's an important thing to recognize. Um, Here is in the devastating scenes that are going to take place later in chapter 17 and 18 and even 19, where the great horror Babylon in the imperial city and judgment is pronounced on Jezebel and all who have gone with her into wickedness, the throwing on a bed, the great distress in verses 22, the utter slaughter that he talks about in verse 23 that will follow are no doubt symbolic, but they are symbolic of the real disasters that befall those who participate in that activity, in that way of worship, right? That he's giving a symbolic thing that you are giving yourself over to something, and just like Jezebel and all who followed her were destroyed, the same is your fate if you follow in this perverted way of trying to live out your Christian faith. And I think it's important that we hold on to what it means to be a follower of Christ, and that is to look like Christ. Christ was very compassionate towards those who were other than, 
to the Samaritan woman, to women in general, uh, to children. We see a lot of compassion, but we also see that he holds fast to representing who God is and how God loves. And so he's not going to allow this representation of God to be tainted by anyone, whether it be the Pharisees or whether it be other people who in his name start to tear down. You see, we we see that that's what Christ was offended at. When he cleared the temple and drove out the, the people, who was he clearing out the temple from? It was the Jews. Why? Because they were misrepresenting God's heart. They were preventing people from coming in to a place of worship. They were blockading the avenue of what God was supposed to do. And then again, we even talked about how he was clearing the temple because a new temple was going to be established, and that was the human heart. And that's really what we need to remember here. You know, it is when we misrepresent who God is as revealed in Christ that Jesus makes a stand and says, that is not me. And so here we see it has to do a lot with sexual perversion. We see it has a lot to do with the idolatrous worship that was taking place there in that city. And Jesus says, that is not me. That is not what God looks like. And that will end up being devastated. That's what he talks about in those harsh words that he says there to them. They will strike their children dead, and all the churches will know that I am here. He searches the hearts and minds. will pray each, repay each according to your deeds. You get what you give, right? You're going to reap what you sow. And Jesus promises them to give them the morning star. So to those who aren't giving themselves over to this, there's the promise, He's going to give them the morning star. And since later in chapter 22, we see that Jesus is the morning star, I believe that this is connecting that it is Jesus himself, a hint to the level of really intimacy that he's going to offer to those who are faithful. I will give you myself. And that's something that he will share his very identity with them, which is what the others are misrepresenting. To those who hold fast, I'm going to share my identity with you. Those who are misusing my identity, it's not yours. And so, again, very serious words here that he wants to share his identity with us, but there is a loyalty to his character that is necessary. And by the morning star, that's most likely what he means. Now, the morning star was actually the planet Venus at that time. That's what they would refer to and call it the morning star. But here it is again symbolic of Christ himself, I believe. Jump to chapter 3 and look at verses 14 to 22. To the angel of the church in Laodicea write, these are the words of the amen, the faithful and true witness, the ruler of God's creation, I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish you were either one or the other. So, because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. It's literally vomit, spew you out of my mouth, your translation might read. You say, I'm rich, I have acquired wealth and do not need a thing. But you do not realize that you are wretched, 
pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so you can become rich and white clothes to wear so you can cover your shameful nakedness and solve for your eyes so you can see. Those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. So be earnest and repent. Here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person and they with me. To the one who is victorious, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne, just as I was victorious and sat down with my father on his throne. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Now, we saw in the previous letter to Philadelphia that they had been devastated by an earthquake in six in eighty seventeen. That's when the one in Philadelphia take place, and they had gratefully accepted help from Rome because that earthquake caused so much devastation. So many cities put out. It's kind of like when we say it's a national disaster, right? We say, okay, this is something that needs government funding to help rebuild, and the same thing happened in Philadelphia, but. Later on, there was an earthquake in 61 AD that was severe and caused major damage to a lot of the cities that were in that valley that were just to the south of Philadelphia. One of the cities that was affected by the earthquake but refused to get imperial help, refused to get that financial support, was Laodicea. They didn't need it, so they didn't need to accept it. Now, most cities were like, yes, we'll receive this help. We can use the money. But Laodicea says, we don't need your money, thanks. We've got it covered. That's how well-to-do they were. And so that's part of the dynamic and mindset of this culture. We've got enough. We don't need your help. That tells us, again a lot about their attitude. Um, One of the things, and one of the more important things that Laodicea was known for is the trade routes, both east and west and north and south. So they would get a lot of commerce coming in and through that region that they were specifically known for that. And because so many people came through there, it allowed them to get a lot of money from all those people that were there. Laodicea profited from this regular traffic, right? It's kind of like those main cities. You know, we went part of our vacation. We went and stayed out in Las Vegas. We weren't on the Strip. We were about half hour out from that, Lake Las Vegas. And it was a beautiful way. It's quiet. But if you wanted to go to a real fancy restaurant, it was there on the Strip. Right, That's where all the hubbub is because you have so many people. And so we went and ate there. We ate at Gordon Ramsay's Burger Place. It was really a good hamburger. Not It's a commercial here for Gordon Ramsay. But you have to deal with the people. There's just thousands of people. right? They're there and they're waiting in line to get into restaurants, to go to the shows, to gamble, all those things. And so same thing with Laodicea. There are so many people, so much traffic It is a place that is getting rich because of that, just Las Vegas, right? That city was built on the people money. You know, you think you're going to win some money, but it's being built on your money that you're losing. And so one of the things that uh, 
they were known for was their eye ointment. They had a special uh, powder that was used for the eyes and the healing of the eyes. And so it was boasting that they had a medical school there, that people would come from distance to train as doctors. People would come to get this eye treatment, the Phrygian eye powder that was there. And so the idea of being rich, the idea now of being blind that he's talking about, all these things are very specific to the city, as well as a fine wool. Another thing that they were known for, the local farmers had developed a particular breed of black sheep whose wool was especially fine quality. And it seems to have generated a fashion that the breeders were only too happy to support clothes that were made by the Laodicean wool that was highly sought after, but it was black. And so he tells them to clothe themselves with the white. Why? Because everyone there boasted, well, look at my suit. It's Laodicean wool, and it's all black, right? Those are the kinds of things that they're having to deal with. Those are all part of that, but then probably the most important thing that we recognize from this is the fact that they are neither hot nor cold. And because they are neither cold nor hot, I will spew them out of my mouth. One of the other things that was common or known in Laodicea is the city did not have a good source of water. With all that it had going for it, there was not a good water source. The river Lycus at the point there was not strong and would dry up during the summer. And so they never had a constant supply of water. The other, there were two other sources of water. One was from the north and the other was from the southeast. To the north, high on these cliffs was Heriopolis and to this day, there is a site there that has the hot springs that are produced in that area, in that region. The hot springs where tourists will come all over the world and they'll see the bubbling water coming out of the ground that are now channeled to the various hotels and different things, different pools where people can go and enjoy the hot springs there that would spill over to the cliffs. And, of course, with that has all the mineral deposits that are visible from miles around. You can see the white mineral from the hot springs bubbling over the cliffs there. It was something that was famous for that region. But by the time that water would get down to Laodicea, it would no longer be hot. It would just be warm. And it was so tainted by all the chemicals and thing that it would actually make you sick. And so you couldn't drink this water unless you wanted to use it for medicinal purposes to get sick. Otherwise, it was of no use for drinking. And so now you see that you're neither hot nor cold starts coming into play. Now, on the other hand, to the southeast of Laodicea, was the town Colossi, right? Colossians was from that area, the book written to that area. And it too suffered badly from the earthquake, but had not been rebuilt. However, it had a great supply of water. The water flowing from that was from the mountaintops where the snow caps would melt. It was cold, it was fresh, it was refreshing. But again, by the time the water reached Laodicea, which was 11 miles away, in the heat and everything, it would become lukewarm. And so it wasn't cold, 
It wasn't refreshing. It was now warm, had traveled 11 miles, and it wasn't the refreshing water that they had over there in Colossae. And so the remarks about neither cold nor hot really deals with them in this culture. And of course, this deals with us as well, right? I know your deeds. You're neither cold nor hot. It's as if what you do makes no difference again to who you are. And this is the kind of thing that is soul-searching because I think when we hear this, a lot of us can think, well, am I lukewarm? Am I hot? You know, we'll, we'll use terms like on fire for the Lord. Or have I grown cold in my relationship with Christ? I think we need to be careful that we don't start putting a list of what it means to be on fire, quote, or what it looks like when your heart is cold. I think there are seasons. I think there's times where I am very much motivated and there are times where I do get cold. I think I can vacillate sometimes in these areas and go from one to the other, depending on where I'm at. And it could happen in a day, right? It could, doesn't mean like, well, this was a dry season for me or this was a year. Well, it could be, you know, this was a hard week and I felt just cold. I felt like I wasn't really there. Or, man, this couple of days I felt like God was really there and I was involved with things and I was on fire, right? It's one of these things that causes us to be introspective, causes us to search and see where we are. But notice that he notices their deeds, and it's by those deeds that he is talking to them. What are you doing that is bringing this fervency, this fire? What are we doing that is making our lives connected and useful and it doesn't have to be something like you know feeding the poor or helping those in prison it could be loving your neighbor it could be showing concern for someone in your family right jesus said you've heard it said that thou shall not commit murder but i say to you you say, you fool, you've committed murder in your heart, right? Jesus is bringing it very much internally. And so sometimes the, the greatest deed we can do is show kindness, show forgiveness, give of ourselves to someone who's in need, right? Be peacemakers. These are all things that can be deeds, that we're doing. And these are the things that I think Jesus is calling us to. He's calling us to do something that shows up in how we live with other people. Right? His response, he addresses the church with a mixture of sorrow and it seems anger. Right? He, he's kind of hurt and he's angry. You're not cold. You're not hot. I, I wish you were either and I'm going to just vomit you out of my mouth. Jesus is disgusted at the taste of the Laodicean Christianity. It makes him sick. Makes us wonder what Jesus thinks of our Christianity. Right? 
what, and again, this could look different from specific churches, but then you look culturally, culturally, you know, churches as it's thought of in the Western world and churches, how they're thought of in different regions. What does Jesus think of it? How does he see this? Is he pleased or do we disgust him? Is it a disgusting taste? And again, it's important to see these things and not like, okay, these people are going to hell, these people are going to heaven. The whole point is he's talking to his church. He's talking to his people, those who belong to him, and he's trying to get us to hear the areas where we're falling short, right? To see if we are lukewarm to see if we are living fully like the character of Christ or not. He then goes and he talks about their affluence, right? It continues just strong. You say you're rich. You say you're doing great. I don't need anything. And apparently there's a smugness about them. There is, you know, this attitude that is there culturally. You know what? We don't need Rome's help. We are strong enough without you. You guys are weak. We are strong. We're the ones who are in charge here. We have no need of any of your resources. We can take care of ourselves. And that smugness seems to have caused an attitude in themselves. Like does, right? Cultures do that. Cultures affect our attitudes, And so we can have that kind of attitude as well. I was doing a training yesterday. And again, it's in a very, very affluent area. And the house that I was at, probably 20,000 square feet, right? And I'm dealing with four different dogs. And as we're going out for the walk, we're passing by the garage, which was glassed windows. And I see two Ferraris, uh, Rolls-Royce, a Bentley, a Range Rover, and two other cars that were covered, and I don't know what they were, right? That garage costs more than my house, right? I mean, it's like, oh, my gosh. And I'm just looking at these cars, and I'm just thinking, oh, my goodness. And, and you know, wiping the drool off my mouth as I'm walking by these cars. You know, you get to a place of affluence, and you can think you don't need anything. Now, I don't know about, about these people. They're actually very nice. She actually gave me a tip. I don't usually get tips for dog training, but I got a tip. And, and so I'm not saying that everyone who's rich is, you know, in this condition. But you can become to a place where I don't need help. I don't need assistance. I've got it together. I have all that I need. We don't need anything. And that's a dangerous place to be, right? It's dangerous when we as Christians, don't see our needs. We don't recognize that we are still poor in spirit, that we are still in a place, or to be in a place of humility, thinking of others more important than ourselves. And Jesus leaves them no doubt. They are, in fact, wretched and pitiful, two general terms of their actual condition. Even if they don't feel that way, they are. You're poor whether you recognize it or not. All your wealth hasn't changed your soul. We talked about that a few weeks back when God wants us to be successful. But it's not just financially, it's relationally as well. 
They are poor, they are blind, they are naked. And he says that they need a different kind of gold, a gold that's refined by fire, a gold that God or Christ only gives. They need a gold that is going to supply what their souls need. Just as they are seeing this money supplies what we physically need, there is something else that you need that is more important. In fact, it supersedes your wealth. And without this, you are impoverished. And so they need this. And they also need the fine clothes, the white ones. Oh, yeah, everyone wants the wool that you guys produce. But what you really need is the cleansing, the purity that I produce. And that only he can provide. The white robes remind us again of that idea of a holy life, of a pure life. They need a new kind of eye salve. That Fijerian specialty won't do to heal the spiritual blindness that they have, right? And, and he tells them to put on this new clothes so that they can cover their nakedness, the salve to put on your eyes so that they can actually see. All these things are hammering at all the areas that they are proud in. And he's tearing them down saying, these areas you think you've got it so good. You think you're wealthy. You think you're clothed. You think you've got the corner on the market with the eye salve, but you're blind. You're naked. You're in bad shape. You're poor. You're wretched. Gosh, how do you really feel, Jesus, right? Verse 19, to those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. Why is he saying this? He's trying to help them to see their condition. And he's telling them, this is where you're at. Remember, everyone who is going to, who is a follower of Christ is going to go through intense persecution at this period in time. And so they can try and hide in the affluence of this city, but it won't be long before their faith and this place are going to come toe-to-toe and they're going to have to make a decision. How are you going to live? Are you going to give up your faith so you maintain your opulence? Or will your faith be strong and help you to see? And he's helping them to see that. Those who I love, I rebuke and discipline. And that's exactly what he's trying to do. He's trying to help them to come to a place so that they can change, which is repent. Right? They can turn from trusting in their situation, repent, and get what they need. And then he says, here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person and they with me. I mean, probably the most popular is you're neither lukewarm or you're neither hot nor cold you're lukewarm the second is this one right you stand at the door and knock if anyone hears and opens that door we've heard this so many times mostly at crusades right at big evangelical evangelical outreaches where they say jesus standing at the door of your heart in their life and that's wonderful and it's absolutely necessary we have to open our lives to christ but it's not quite what the passage is about, right? Jesus isn't telling the non-believer if they hear his voice to open up the door. He's talking to those who already belong to him. 
He's talking to the church. He's talking to those he loves, those who he's disciplining, and he's telling them these things. Now, there are similar stories in the Gospels that suggest that the knocking on the door is that of knocking on the master's house, returning, who's knocking at the house, at an, returning at an unexpected hour. And that was kind of the warning to Sardis in chapter 3. While the one who should open the door is the servant who has stayed awake, it is then Jesus' house in the first place. Our job is simply to welcome home. And that echoes the ancient scripture suggesting a different but related image, and that is the bridegroom knocking on the door of the house where his beloved lies asleep. We see that in Song of Solomon. A glance at Revelation 21 suggests that this may have been in mind as well, that that of the bridegroom and opening up and allowing this, the bridegroom to come in. And there's even more. For some reason, all those talks and sermons that I've heard all those times, you know, about opening the door, don't delve into the second portion as strongly. The second half that says, I will come into them and eat with them and they with me. No early follower of Christian or Christ could have heard those words without thinking of the regular meal and the breaking of bread. Right? This is the Lord's table, the idea which Jesus would come powerfully and personally and give himself to his people symbolically, and it was there to bring unity to the community, communion. And such meals anticipate that final messianic banquet when we will eat with him at that table. We see that again in chapter 19, where this is all coming to the place. Jesus said, I will not eat this again until I eat with you in my father's house, right? This is leading to that place. They are advanced comings of the one who will one day come fully and forever. Those who share this meal and who thereby strengthened by it in the relationship with Christ to conquer as Jesus conquered. And that's what he says. I mean, to those who he's just rebuked, he says, to the one who is victorious, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne. Sit with me on my throne. These are powerful words. Just as I was victorious and sat down with my father on his throne. Right? Right? He is inviting us to this very personal place where we are now royal priests for the kingdom, that we represent Christ to the world. We have a place that is not just up in heaven somewhere, but it's actually with him on his throne. And as he's conquered, so will we conquer. Which makes us think, how did he conquer? Right? All this is pretty mind-blowing to think of Jesus sharing the throne of God and then sharing it with us. And this is a fulfillment of Psalm 110 of Daniel 7. But it now appears that those who conquer are going to share Jesus' throne as well, that we will share this strange, sovereign rule over 
the kingdom that God is restoring. But it's not going to come by force of arms. It's not going to come by us conquering, becoming wealthy, becoming imperialistic like Rome. It's actually going to come by us suffering like Christ suffered, is the power of suffering. And that's what it means to be a royal priesthood. And so as he closes, he says, those who have ears to hear, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He's telling the churches that are going to go through incredible persecution. It is going to be happening. You guys, this is how you overcome. This is how you sit on the throne. This is what it means to be rich. This is what it means to be clothed in white. This is what it looks like to actually be affluent, to be healthy, to be able to see. It isn't all these things that you're holding on to. It's all these things that Christ has already laid hold of. And you see, I think that is something that the church still needs to hear. What is it that we're trying to accomplish? We're trying to be like Christ. We're not trying to get out of this world and go to heaven and and leave everyone to go through a tribulation. It is we're trying to represent Christ to the world. What did Jesus do? That's what we're supposed to do. How did Jesus is That's how you're supposed to live. And we can get a very especially because we are in such an affluent country, our affluence and our wealth can start to taint our thinking of gospel, just like the culture of Laodicea tainted their understanding of Christ and how they lived. And we want to be careful we don't do that. There's nothing wrong with having two Ferraris and a Range Rover nothing wrong with those things but what are you doing are you hot are you cold what are you clothing yourself what really makes you rich see i know people who are well to do who are very generous and i know people who don't have much who are very generous and i know people who have a lot and are not generous at all and i know people who don't have a lot and are not generous at all, right? It's a character more than those things. And so we have to understand what Christ is looking for is our attitude of heart, whether we are going to be royal priesthood or not. If we are going to look like Christ, if we are going to share his throne, then we have to behave like he behaved. And so those who have ears to hear Hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches. Let's pray. Father, thank you again for these words. May they be encouragement to us and may they help us to see who you are and how we are to live. May we take the warnings to heart and may we see you clearly as you are represented here and help us to understand what you are saying. You have been listening to the Genesis Podcast. We invite you to join us at one of our weekly gatherings. You can find more information at www.thegenesisstory.com 
as well as opportunities to help financially support this podcast. Thank you for listening.